Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to Product Coffee. Uh, we have a wonderful guest here today, um, Ravi Mehta. I believe I'm saying your name right. Please yeah, correct absolutely. me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, Ravi, uh, he's the CEO at Scale Hire, um, a company that supercharges your success at work with one-on-one real guidance from experienced coaches. Um, he's formerly an EIR at Reforge, CPO at Tinder, and led product teams at Facebook, TripAdvisor, Xbox. You don't know Ravi. You're living under a rock. Um, he, he's a really awesome product leader and, and a great um, uh, uh, leader in the space. So love love seeing the, the uh, blog posts, the insights, all the stuff that you've done has been really helpful um, for my career personally. And I know the others on this call as well. Um, today, we're going to be talking uh, about coaching and leveling up your team. And since Ravi has done this so successfully and well in all these other avenues and created a company around this, we felt that you were uh, prime for this topic. So let's kick this off with a question. Uh, again, thank you for being here. And how would you define what a coach is? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be here. I think it's an interesting question. I've actually learned a lot about the answer since starting this company. Um, there's there's a few different terms that people use around this. The two most common are coaches versus, versus mentors. Um, I've been thinking a lot about coaching um, for a few years now. I uh, first got a chance to work with a coach when I was at TripAdvisor. I was the head of consumer product there. Uh, I got trusted with a really big project, which was to, for the first time, add hotel booking to TripAdvisor. Um, And as part of that opportunity, I got the chance to work with a coach. And I found um, during my time at TripAdvisor that having that sounding board, having someone I could talk to in a really candid setting was just a superpower. Um, And it really helped me achieve a lot. It was something that um, we rolled out to more of the team. Uh, so it was something that we tried to do as broadly as possible. But of course, we hit the limits of that because coaching is pretty expensive and, and high touch um, for companies to provide really broadly. Um, and so I've always really treasured the experiences that I've had with coaching. I found they made a really big impact on me. Um, and you know, I would love to bring that to more people, but I wasn't quite sure how to do that. And uh, with Scale Higher, I think there's some interesting clues, which we can get into about um, how to bring coaching to more people. But in the journey since starting Scale Hire over the last six months and answering that question, um, we've you know gotten a lot more defined about how we think about coaching. Ultimately, I think the goal for, um, for anyone is to get guidance that helps them succeed. And there's kind of two different ways to go about doing that. Mentors typically have domain experience, and so they're able to give you guidance by offering you um, advice from their experience that can help you solve domain-specific problems. Coaches, on the other hand, typically don't have domain experience, um, and they can help you understand things that are holding you back or help you figure out how to solve your problems by asking you the right questions. 
it's a subtle nuance in terms of the difference between the two. Um, I think most people, when they're looking for help in their careers, are looking for a combination, uh, looking for someone that can help ask the right questions as well as someone who can offer um, experienced advice. And that's really how we define coaching. So um, we've used the term kind of mentor coaches or operator coaches for the type of people that we're recruiting into, into scale hire. Um, what we really want is to have a set of folks that people can come to have a really candid conversation, a really safe conversation, and know that they're getting great informed advice um, and that they're also getting the support that they need to sort of figure out what's holding them back. Yeah. And I would also like to say that I'm, I actually signed up and am one of the early <laughs> users of Scale. And uh, I'm in, I think I'm in module three at this week. And, you know, uh, so far um, it's, it's been great. I've been able to, you know, um, I can go into more detail on that later, but um, I've been actively providing Ravi with some notes as well back on my experience. So I hope that I'm a good tester for you as well to help you grow this product because I, I do see the value and the importance of it. So. Absolutely excited to have you as part of the as part of the product. Um, at, given your experience so far, like what were you hoping to get out of out of coaching? So, how did you define coaching when you decided that you wanted to sign up? Great question. Um, yeah, I think I, I think it's we share similar stories, right? I, I, I've uh, been fortunate enough to have like a really strong product coach early on in my career. Um, um, and uh, so I so I understood the value of that, right? It, it, especially with a career that's so ambiguous and not not really knowing what the template is to go do this the right way or the course or the things you need to be doing well. Um, they had a early version of your competency uh, check as well. Uh, uh, like a, I had a version of that, um, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And so like, I don't know where that came from, but it, it was, you know, that was really helpful. It's like, oh, I didn't know that this was an element of the job that I need to grow. And so you don't know what you don't know. You can't improve in what you, what you um, don't know as well. And so that's where I liked uh, coaching in general and wanted to approach it and now experiencing that, want to share my learning so I can help others level up. And that's kind of why we started this podcast. So when I was looking at scale in my mentality as, a, as an infinite learner, just wanting to always level up my skills and grow and, and be, you know, and improve with what I do, uh, I don't quite know what to do, right? I, you know, I make assumptions or I read books and, you know, we listen to podcasts and we interview in, amazing leaders like yourself. And then you don't quite know, well, how do I apply that to my specific situation? How do I personally grow in my skills? How do I understand what my blind spots are? How do I go through all this stuff? And so that, you know, that's why I really liked that what scale has to offer um, it, and also it was affordable. So it was something that it was like, yeah, it's not a break the bank kind of thing where I have to really commit to this. Well, you, there is a, it's a price point where it's a, it's enough of a commitment to really put your energy into it, but you also want to do it. So I, yeah, all that, that, that being said, I really, that aligned with what I wanted to accomplish in my career and how to level up. And then also seeing the amazing people that you guys had as coaches, I was like, yep, I want to learn from these people. Um, and so I, I learned personally better with through experience and through one-on-ones. And so that, you know, again, it, it kind of ticked all the boxes for me. So that's kind of why I approached it. That's great. And that hit on something I think we've been thinking a lot about, which is there's been so much innovation in how to learn. Like there's on-demand courses, there's cohort-based courses, there's tons of blogs and, and podcasts, and there's so many great ways to acquire knowledge, but actually 
putting it into practice, getting feedback, really getting that development loop going and feeling like you're growing in a very practical way with the knowledge is much is much harder. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like a high level thing, but that's the high level problem space that we really want to solve with this is give people an easier way to get into that loop where they can not only learn a new concept, but have an opportunity and be committed to putting into practice, get the feedback to know where some of the rough edges are, and then rinse and repeat. That's something I've noticed like earlier to mid-level career. Um, there was a lot I was able to learn through various like channels, like podcasts, YouTube, books, et cetera, uh, where a, there's a lot of general principles and, and things that can help you get a, a really good head start as you're also like starting to build out products. Um, but it doesn't necessarily bridge the gap of um, getting support with like your blind spots and kind of hitting a point where you're trying to like, again, scale beyond what you're really aware of or capable of. Like, I think that takes some outside perspectives that often have some visibility into your unique situation. And that's, I think, where coaching becomes a lot more, uh, more important. Um, so kind of along those lines, I think you've, you've touched on this, but, um, what would you say like really high quality coaching looks like? I mean, there's these different channels and avenues through which you can get either information or coaching, but like, how do you judge what like really good quality coaching looks like? Yeah, I think the first marker of really good quality coaching is sort of going into an interaction whether it's you know a live interaction or uh, talking with some, with someone asynchronously, um, and feeling like you have a safe space, like there's so much about our daily work lives where um, you're trying to influence and present in a certain way and convince people of of things that um, you know it's often not easy within work to say I don't know or like I'm trying to debate between these two things or am I showing up and in the wrong way. Um, and so, you know, I think that the first kind of the baseline foundational thing that makes for a great coaching relationship is one where you feel comfortable doing that. Um, and you can go into that relationship and have a sounding board where you can talk not around things, but just get at the issue directly. Um, I think the second thing that's really important with a really good coaching relationship um, is I think a back and forth, and I think some people would disagree with me on this, but um, some coaches just really want to ask questions. They don't want to provide any opinions. Um, and in that way, it's almost like, you know, some coaches, especially in the kind of life or career coaching side of things, really treat it almost like therapy where they say <clears throat> they sort of see their role as helping you uh, using the Socratic method kind of get to your own answers. I think for career coaching, especially for mid-career, like there's a combination of problems that we're working on that have, you know, both hard skills as well as soft human elements to them. It's really nice to be able to have a back and forth and to, and to hear what the other person thinks, what you think, and get to kind of progressively working towards um, a plan that um, you feel like you can put into practice. So, it's practical. I think it's opinionated. Um, I think it's safe. And then the other thing that I think is really important is, um, is commitment, a feeling of, you know, you've, it, it's much easier when you're talking to someone and you have a conversation and you've talked about something that you're going to do to actually commit to doing it than it is to just kind of make a mental, mental note. Um, and if that coach is someone who, holds you accountable in a, in a practical way, in a sensitive way, but ultimately holds you accountable. I think that is also something that unlocks um, growth for people. So it's a combination of like a safe space, combination of getting to really good opinionated answers, and then accountability. 
Yeah. I, I really like that. And I, I definitely have noticed a pattern of um, a little bit of back and forth being helpful. Like the kind of Socratic method is helpful, but I think sometimes it's valuable to hear someone who gives you insights into here's ways I've approached this or seen this approached, but also is able to have it bring enough like wisdom to, to moderate that with, you know, here's some reasons to consider not doing X, Y, or Z, but here are some different options that maybe have worked in different contexts. Definitely. And I think that pattern recognition for the coaches is really important because one of the advantages that they have relative to other people in other professions is they get to talk to a lot of people who are dealing with similar issues and, and see the patterns. And I know from the, the person that I worked with at TripAdvisor, who's absolutely amazing, is I could give him a three-sentence summary of the situation that I was in. Um, and he would pull out of his library of patterns. He'd be like, this is the situation that you're facing. I think these are the different, um, probably different stakeholder perspectives that are involved. Um, here's how I'd recommend you start to think about how to tackle the problem. Um, and so, you know, if you can work with a coach who has that sort of pattern recognition and can take a shortcut to these really complicated situations, that definitely feels like a superpower. Cool. I think changing gears a little bit, Robbie, would love to learn a little bit more about how you think about coaching in the context of management. And when we talk about management, coaching is obviously a huge part of it, but then there are also things like mentorship that you've talked about. And another thing that we haven't really talked about a whole lot, which is sponsorship. Um, and I'd love your thoughts just on when does it make sense to deploy each of those tactics? Do you have an opinion on um, how managers should be thinking about the definitions for each and how they might approach each of those different roles? Definitely. And this is for a manager who's thinking about how to coach their team. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I think just asking the question is a really important thing, right? Because there's a lot of managers who don't see their role as a coach and see their role more as like a coordinator or a conductor. Um, I think this is especially true for new managers. Like when you're making that transition from doing IC work to doing work where you're leading a team, um, one of the most common failure modes that I see is sort of treating your team as an extension of yourself and thinking, okay, now I have more resources to get IC work done. And so a lot of new managers get into the mode of micromanaging. And um, there's a lot of problems with micromanaging, but one of the key problems from the manager's perspective um, is that robs you of leverage. Like there's no way you can manage, you know, if you were doing 10 tasks in a week, there's no way you can manage at the same level of detail, 50 tasks a week, if you have a team of five. Um, and so that gets new managers into this kind of new manager death spiral where they're spread really thin, really quickly. They're, they're spending a lot of time micromanaging, putting out fires. They're not spending time giving the team the context that they need to be autonomously get to um, to goals that are impactful for the company, um, and very quickly they find you know they may find that they don't like management, or they may find that they're not able to get the impact that they want. Um, so I think the first thing is just to orientate orientate yourself around um, my job as a manager is not to micromanage, but really um, to do two things. One is to give the team um, the context and the autonomy to do their job really well. Um, and then two is to translate what we're trying to accomplish as a company um, into a really clear remit for the team. So if you give them really strong direction, you give them really good autonomy, and you sort of progressively do that, and you help each person on your team um, realize the potential that they have and make good decisions in the context of what the company's trying to do, you're going to get a lot more leverage as a manager. Your team's going to be a lot more um, successful. The challenge is that does involve some like dynamic range around 
you know, when things are going, going well, um, you know, that's, that's great. All of those things are, uh, you know, you're kind of firing on all cylinders, you're leading in a very scalable way. The challenge is when things are not going well, what do you do? Right. And so the classic question is, you know, should I jump in? Should I, should I micro micromanage or should I stay back and, you know, potentially let the team go in a direction that I don't think is the right one. And that's where I think managers have to think really deeply about this sort of tension between control and autonomy and, Micromanagement does have a bad name because it's often misused. I call that micro mismanagement. And that's when you misuse it where you're kind of robbing your, your team of autonomy and you're spreading yourself thin and things are not actually happening and that are impactful. But sometimes selective micromanagement is helpful um, if a team is not doing um, is not on the right track. And the goal with selective micromanagement is to go really deep with the individuals, the team members, understand why things might not be going in the way that you want. Um, and then you know, slowly pulling back once they have the context, once they have the skills um, to deliver on the things that you as a manager want to see from them. And ultimately, the goal of selective micromanagement is to give the team the context so that you can um, help them be autonomous again, rather than feel like you always have to micromanage them. Um, so there is a tension. Like, I think that's one of the reasons that coaching is so important is because you don't have that tension with a coach. They're not evaluating you. They don't have a boss that they're reporting to, to, they don't have impact that they're trying to generate. Their 100% job is to give you the support that you need um, in order to achieve your goals. Whereas your manager's job is partly to give you that support, but also to understand um, that there's a, a level of performance that they need to be accountable to and the company needs to be accountable to. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I, so I'm uh, moving into, or I, I, I am a new head of product at this new job and I'm learning, you know, the state of where they have been in product. They have to the team. They've established product market fit. Um, in, in, you know, where do I lean in, and, and where do I kind of coach, and how do I do that effectively? Because when when I've assessed the situation, um, being two months into it at this point, I've you know, there's some things that they're just fundamentally not doing that we need to change. And how much of the fundamentals do you just flip the switch and turn over uh, without getting that um, whiplash of like, you know, oh, you're doing it wrong. We need to do it this way. Right. I think with your context versus control in mind, one tool that I've heard work in, in, a, in and be curious of this micromanagement concept, but this see one, do one, teach one, if you've ever heard this. but no, like, I haven't heard that. So the, the whole concept is that uh, you show them how it works, essentially, or you, you, you do it, you show it, you, you teach them, and then you have them see it, do it, teach it. And so if, if you know, I'm trying to do that a little bit, because I think that's a, a way that you can kind of bring that change and that those foundations and, and, and the right level of context. But I'm curious, do you have any experience with doing that? Or have you are, have you only come into a organization with an established product um, uh, management function? Like, have you been able to assess and then transition? Yeah, definitely. I've had a couple of experiences that are like that. Um, I've worked in companies with uh, an existing product management function 
But you know, I've also come into situations where we've needed to sort of take stock of how that function was going and figure out what we need to do um, in order to really accelerate the product team. I love that framework. I think that's exactly the right way for managers to approach approach things. Um, and you know, unfortunately, when you become a manager, especially when you have a larger team, you know, you're going to run into situations where um, you know the people one person on your team or a couple of people on your team might not be delivering what you what you need from them even after working with them to uh to coach them and so um one of the things that we talk about within the product leadership program that I put together for reforge is how you actually diagnose that and there's four different reasons why a person might be underperforming um the first one is um there's uh, just a lack of motivation, right? The person is not motivated to perform. So you're giving them feedback and they're not really taking it because they don't, um, they don't really want to take it. They're not motivated. That's a really hard problem to solve. Ultimately, it's not up to a manager to motivate their employees. They have to bring their own motivation to the table. The second thing that um, is, uh, is less common but does happen is you might have someone who is ostensibly performing their role, um, but they're doing it in a way that's really toxic. They're causing a lot of burnt bridges. They're causing a lot of relationship issues. Um, and there, the thing to really coach them on is how they're showing up. Because oftentimes, high performers that are showing up in that way just don't understand um, how they're dealing with people. And especially as they become more senior, especially in the product role, that ability to understand how you're showing up and, and how you um, create really strong, effective relationships is super important. And so that you solve really by coaching the person on relationships. And if they're able to get better, that's great. If they're not, like that's something you need to evaluate whether or not it makes sense to continue to have that person in the org because it's, you know, that toxicity will have a knock-on effect. And I like giving them the chance, like that you're giving them the opportunity and then you're helping them. Like it's not just, you know, sorry. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, um, you know, there's different ways to think about this. There's kind of like hire fast, fire fast, hire, hire right. slow, we fire fast. That, yeah. I'm on the camp of like hire slow, fire slow. You want to take a lot of effort to get to make sure that you're hiring the right people. If you've done that, then you have a high probability that the people in your org um, are the right folks. And if they're not, you want to take a really deliberate approach to working with them to understand what's why they aren't performing and make sure that you've given them the best opportunity to, um, to perform. Uh, and if that's not the case, then, you know, then you have to make a hard decision, but I think a really good manager will feel like if they have to let someone go, it's part partially their failure, partially, partially on the other person. What I really like about that is I've, I've been in organizations where you, hire someone, they don't work out, you fire them quickly. And you think, wow, that, that did not go well. That was a disaster. Maybe we made mistakes. They weren't the right fit. We hire someone else. Everything's on, like everything else is chaos anyway, because it's product management and we're building stuff. And then the new person doesn't quite work out. And you're a little more reticent to make a change because you just let someone go yeah. not that long ago. And it starts to feel like a track record. Um, and I think hi- firing a little slower is a, a good way to understand what's really not working about this person we've hired and how do we guard against that uh, in the past? Something I've done in this case where we hired in someone in a relatively senior position, didn't work out um, is to do a, a post-mortem as to like, why didn't this work out the same way you do with like a big failed initiative or hi- hypothesis. 
and detail out the things that the expectations that weren't met, um, but also maybe the gaps between, you know, what you put together for someone to step into and, and what support they maybe did or didn't have. So I, I really like uh, that approach. Um, and one of the key, key reasons why people aren't performing uh, is because there's an opportunity mismatch is that they want to perform, but for some reason they're getting held back. And it might be because they don't understand the strategy well enough. It might be because they don't have the resources that they need. It might be because they don't have the influence or authority that they need to drive decision-making. It might be that there's dependencies on other teams who are not um, providing the support that that person needs. And I think a really good manager will go in and figure out, is a person not performing because there's a capability mismatch in which I need to understand, can they fill the gaps on those capabilities? Or are they not performing because there's an opportunity mismatch? And it's my job as a manager to make sure that they have the opportunity to perform at their full potential. And if you're in a situation where you've recently let someone go and then you've hired another person into that role and that person's not performing or you know, you've moved someone from another team and that person's not performing, you know, signals are saying like there's actually an opportunity mismatch. There's something about this role that isn't set up to enable a person to do the rest work. Yeah, that's, that's uh, super interesting. And I, I'm curious... Um, is there kind of a parallel there on more of the coaching side? So we were talking very specifically about the managerial side of, I mean, there's kind of a rubric you've identified sort of, or a framework of someone who's, you know, maybe, uh, not competent versus not motivated, uh, versus maybe there's an opportunity mismatch with the role itself. Um, when you're, when you're, uh, coaching someone with a little bit less of like the managerial connection, do you have a similar rubric or framework that you employ to kind of try and get at the heart of, um, how you should approach coaching different types of people in different situations. So a really important part of coaching is like an initial diagnosis of the situation that a person's in. Like people will bring to their coaching sessions kind of raw feelings um, about, you know, what's working or what's, what's not working. And a really good coach will get beneath that and try to understand, you know, why are you feeling this way? And what are the circumstances that are causing that? Um, and, you know, in terms of, you know, what we just, what we just talked about that can show up in different ways. So it could be that, you know, a person's being asked to do something, let's say it's, you know, it's a person that's worked on mostly new product development and they've just been moved over to a growth team and they don't quite understand how to approach the problems. They don't have enough experience with experimentation. They don't have enough experience with growth loops. Um, and so there, there's a clear capability mismatch. And that doesn't mean that that person can't perform but it does mean that they need to identify the skills that they need and figure out a really clear and actionable plan to fill the gap on those skills. But it could also be that a person is in like a new product development role, um, but they don't actually know what the company's trying to accomplish with this product, what the strategy is, how the product's meant to fit in with the company's existing products. They don't have good support from engineering. They only have like, you know, a part-time user researcher, so they can't talk to customers. And so there's all these things that are actually getting in the way of them doing their job, even though they have the capabilities. And in that case, a lot of what the coaching should be about is how do you engage with your manager and with other people in the organization to get the resources that you need um, in order to be successful. Um, and so, you know, that might, you know, it might be the person may be feeling the same way about those two different situations, but getting at the underlying root of why they're feeling that way can help you figure out the right solution um, and what the person should do practically to, to navigate it. I think building building on top of that a little bit, I think one of the things that, that a lot of us do, and I know a lot of people do across the industry when it comes to management and coaching is the one-on-one. -on -one. And would love your thoughts on 
how how does coaching interplay with one-on-ones and how should people think about one-on-ones when it comes to applying best practices from coaching? Yeah, I think it goes to what the topic you were talking about earlier with like, what is the role of a manager and how much time should they be spending on coaching versus on managing? Um, you know, although it's a little bit like, uh, you know, a little bit clumsy, I think like one of the things that's really helpful is to say, you know, one one-on-one a month we're going to use for coaching. And I'm not going to do anything in that one-on-one to uh, to evaluate you, to ask you about status, to figure out what the OKR status is or how, you know, dig into experiment results or anything like that. We're really going to use that for you to tell me how things are going and for me to help you and give you support that you, that you need. Um, and so if you can create that safe space, that allows you to for- foster a really good conversation with the person. Um, I think a... Uh, a framework that I really like is is radical candor. Um, and ultimately, radical candor is kind of about two things. One, it's being really candid with someone, but it's also about creating a relationship with, with someone where they know that you care deeply about them, that you empathize with them, and you want to support them. And so being able to coach someone is actually something you need to earn as a manager. Um, you know, not every one of your employees is going to want to be coached by you, especially if you've demonstrated in the past, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of tendency to, to micromanage them or to hold them accountable when, you know, they don't necessarily have all of the things that they need to be successful. Um, and so earning the right to coach someone is really about building, building that relationship. And an important thing to do in one-on-ones is to create some dedicated time for that. If you don't actually dedicate time for it in your one-on-one and call it out explicitly, um, I think there's a tendency for most one-on-ones to get into status and minutia and details um, rather than really talk about the fundamental things. Yeah, I love that. Specifically what you said about earning the right to be a coach. Um, I think that's, that's so true. I think maybe this is probably something a little bit more prevalent with new managers that just by getting the title, they have all of these new responsibilities and there are these things that just come with the title. And I was hoping you could just double click on that a little bit and tell us more about that process and how you see it. And perhaps for the managers out there, how do they know when they've reached that point where they can say, oh, yeah, I feel like we, our relationship has progressed to a place where I, where I can recognize that I've earned the right to be that coach. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's more important than ever, like with, with things around the great resignation, with you know how well things are doing in the tech industry, people have options um, and they don't have to obey you because you're your man there you're, you're their manager right what you really want is a team of people that are dedicated to what the company is doing that um, are working towards a unified goal because they believe in that goal and they believe in you um, as a manager so I think it's more important than ever to earn that right to be a coach um, I think one of the really important steps or like a very tangible first step is to shift the conversation away from the day to day and talk about the long term especially from that person's perspective. Um, one of the one of the things I find really valuable and one of the things I tell PMs on my team is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I want you to be successful here, but I also want you to be successful in your career. So let's talk about what do you what do you ultimately want to accomplish? Do you want to move into a CPO role? Do you want to go really deep into a particular area of the product or technology? Do you want to start your own company? If we can figure out like what you're trying to solve for, um, not just right now, but over the long term, um, then like you and I can have a really clear and effective conversation, not just about how you perform really well 
in this particular role for this particular set of OKRs for this quarter, but how you use that to ladder up into where you want to go. And just shifting the conversation from like, I'm really holding you accountable for what you're doing in the quarter to I want to support you and what you want to accomplish in your career that immediately earns a lot of trust. And then if you follow through with really good support and advice for that person, um, you know, then, you know, they'll be grateful for it and they'll be more motivated. They'll also be more thoughtful about what it is they need to do in order to um, level up their work. I love that. And then I, I like what you said about dedicating time, you know, having one a month at least dedicated on this topic. I, I, I don't know if I've over overcorrected on that, but I have weekly one-on-ones. I, I'm still trying to dial in the right mixture of things. I think we'll always keep doing that. But the the questions I asked that I found kind of prompt the uh, the individual to start thinking about, and then we have that discussion in the room is what is your personal high? What is your personal low? What is your professional high? What is your professional low? And I do that every week though. And I wonder if it, because because I've also I've done it two ways. So one way I would do that where we'd have this conversation, and and then you know the last two questions: What is one thing I can help you with this week? And then what are your top priorities? And so like I can get status updates because we put that things we can we put that in place where I can go in and understand. But those opportunities is really to really dive into um, that that specific detail. The other approach that I've done in the past that I've wondered if you've seen this seen this before was you have your one on one time to talk more about those things, and then alternating weeks would have a coaching session where I actually like to dive into a specific thing that they're working on. So then I can help them through this, like have use me as a tool of like uh, for uh, feedback to refine. And so here's a brief that I'm working on, or here's a PRD and um, I'm struggling with this section here. What do you guys think? What do you think about this? How can I do this better? And then we can kind of just get into it. Um, so yeah, what, what is your experience with like dialing the level of coaching versus management and all that like structure of the one-on-one, like anything else that you can say about that? Yeah, I think for, um, I really like that last piece that you mentioned of just giving sort of dedicated time to dive into something specific. One of the things that I've used to try to do that is um, office hours. So I've set aside time on like a Thursday afternoon or a Friday afternoon for office hours. I'll have like a It seems like it's less forceful, right? Like it's like you elect to do that. So the mindset's different in the room. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, because it's like more casual, because it doesn't need to be scheduled ahead of time, it can be really real time. Like if a person hit a problem yesterday and they want to come to office hours the the next day, they can do that. And it's a really good way to have, um, uh, you know, good kind of deep conversations. The other thing is like, I, you know, I would get a chance to have one-on-ones with a certain set of my, my team. But once my team got to a particular size, like I couldn't have one-on-ones with everyone. Um, and so having office hours was a way for me to make myself available to the whole team. So if there was a, a new PM that, you know, had just started at the company and they were working on an interesting project and they wanted to get my thoughts, you know, we could dig into it there. And what did that office hour look like? Was it like uh, an hour? Was it a couple hours? And what was the format? I would have like a four hour block. Um, and then, uh, each, uh, each slot's like half an hour and a person could just sign up for a slot. I love that because it is a little bit of structure so that it's, it's productive and, and useful. So. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I, I like the idea of needing to book us or being able to book a slot because sometimes with office hours, it can feel like just a general block of time that 
it's easy to forget about it. It becomes just a placeholder on the calendar, or maybe you don't feel super comfortable like dropping in. I like, I've even occasionally felt that I'm like, I don't know them that well. You know, my mild social anxiety gets the best of me. And you're like, you know what? I'll just, I'll talk to them later. Uh, whereas you book something now it's on the calendar and there's a commitment there. Um, so I, I really like, like Kevin said, a little bit of that structure. That's great. And I think another thing which was helpful before, you know, we a lot of us moved to remote was just walking up to someone's desk. Like you walk up to someone's desk and you start to strike up a conversation. Um, you know, it's less formal and you can kind of dig into the details and they're not going to feel as much pressure to sort of have all their all their ducks in a row. Um, I think you'd still kind of replicate that with with remote. Like one thing I've seen people do is um they'll do like, you know, during their lunch hour, they'll they'll reach out to people and say, Hey, do you want to jump on a on a zoom together and eat lunch together, that sort of thing. I like that. Yeah. We've done a couple of that, like team lunches or some team zoom lunches. And when we first went to remote, we did that a lot. And it was really, uh, it was fun. You get to know people on a different level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I, I'm curious. So, so you're, let, let's say, you know, you are a coach, you are a mentor, you are a leader, you you manage PMs. Um, what are there, like what signals, what, indications that you're doing a good job could you look for to like measure performance um, uh, or effectiveness of, of being in this role? I think there's a few overlapping, overlapping things. Um, one, I think you should be like self-reflective about the conversations that you're having with your PMs. Are you having really deep conversations? Are you getting at kind of root cause issues? Do you feel like, um, do you feel like they are getting the support that they, that they need. Um, you can also like just impromptu kind of ask for feedback because uh, it's helpful to, to just say, Hey, what, you know, what questions do you have for me or what could I be doing, doing better? It's so rare for a manager to say, to say to one of their employees, what could I be doing, doing better that that kind of like breaks through and, it, and starts a really interesting conversation. Um, there's some of the more, I think official things like doing 360 reviews or doing a pulse check survey, both of those are good. You don't have to wait um, to do those on a particular cycle. Like let's say you've got a you've got a team, you're feeling like um, you know, maybe there's some things to kind of work through and you want to get some more data about it. You could just launch a like pulse check survey and ask people how they're doing. It doesn't have to be very long um, and get some feedback and start to get a feel for how the team um, is doing. The office hours are really helpful for that as well because it's a low pressure pressure setting. The other thing I think is really important is to look at, um, to have a good quarterly process around goal setting and look at like, are teams regularly hitting goals or are they regularly not hitting goals? A team that's not hitting goals, it doesn't mean that they're performing poorly, right? And a team that is hitting goals doesn't mean that they're performing well. There is a distinction between um, you know, whether or not you hit the, sort of the external measure of whether or not you hit a goal and the internal performance of a team. But that gives you some directionality to understand, you know, if a team didn't hit its goals, are they not setting the right goals? Do they not understand how to move the needle on the product? Or are they not getting the resources that they need? And it gives you a little bit of diagnostic to be able to dig into that. If they are setting, if they are hitting their goals, you know, you can try to understand, well, why are they, you know, what gives them uh, the ability to hit their goals? Where is that kind of confidence and conviction coming from? How do I really um, augment that and make sure that this isn't a one or two quarter thing, but it's really a, a pattern that teams can get into. Um, so those are really important as well. I think the other thing is like, you know, a lot of what managers focus on, a lot of what um, team members focus on is how to fix the stuff that's not working. 
recognizing the stuff that is working is really important. Like typically great companies are built on strengths, not on, uh, not on weaknesses. And so, um, you know, if you're asking a person for their highlights for the week or, you know, a team just hit a goal out of the park, celebrating that, helping a team understand and really appreciate why they were able to achieve that creates a really nice positive feedback loop where, you know, people want to achieve those things because they're getting recognition and people are able to achieve those things more regularly because there's some assessment of, um, of what went well. Um, and they know, you know, what path to follow next time. Um, curious your thoughts on does coaching differ if you're coaching like an individual contributor, like coaching a a product manager, senior product manager versus coaching a director of product group product manager. Um, is the dynamic different? Are there some differences uh, in, in how, you, how you'd approach that? Yeah, there are some pretty key differences. I think for an individual contributor, the coaching will often, um, from a product perspective, deal with uh, stakeholder manager is always important no matter what level of product you're in. So there may be some things related to that. Um, there's probably significant things related to personal productivity. So it could be productivity or focus. Um, there may be coaching related to sort of assessing your skills um, and figuring out how to develop those skills. Oftentimes when PMs are earlier in their career, they want to move into management. Um, and so there may be some coaching around how do you get the experience that you need? How do you develop the track record that you need in order to accomplish that? Um, you know, there's also a lot of uh, energy around individual features and making sure those features are successful. So there's probably some coaching um, around that as well. And so uh, there's a whole set of things I think are really specific to that particular phase that you want to get um, get coaching on. And this is one of the, the benefits of coaching is it can be really personalized to your particular phase. Once you're at a director level, that equation starts to change in some pretty important ways. One is like your personal ability to drive work um, is not what it was before. You're actually working through people rather than working through yourself. And so being able to understand what we've been talking about, like how to manage, motivate, and coach your team is incredibly um, important. There's uh, topics around how to organize your team, how to set goals, how to make sure that um, you know the strategy that you have is baked into the organization so that everyone understands what they're what they're trying to achieve. There's really key coaching around managing up. I find that for people, especially at the director level, um, they've spent so much time focusing on themselves and their team and their stakeholders that the amount of face time that they now have with um, executives and other leaders in the company um, is a change for them. And it could be something that they really embrace um, or it could be something that they're not paying enough attention to. So that becomes a really key part of coaching. Um, And then another thing that's really important at that level is strategic thinking. Like, how do you understand what a company is trying to achieve, what the assets of the company are, how do you translate that into a product strategy, how do you use that to inform your roadmap. Um, So that combination of kind of strategic thinking, team management, and managing up become, I think, for director level and above, like the key areas to focus on. Yeah, there's a ton. There's a ton for sure. I I think what I really liked about what you said was you have to start doing work through people and your ability to influence and motivate others becomes really important. I think what, what I'd love to, to hear you speak a little bit more about is from the IC perspective, from the product manager perspective, kind of on the other end of that, um, how much of a coach do they need to be? And there a lot of PMs and ICs are aspiring directors, CPOs, VPs of product or what have you. So 
for those for those people who are in that stage of their career, how can we help them identify to practice those skills in their day-to-day life? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, one of the interesting things are about product is it's a leadership role right from the first, you know, right from the entry level. Like as soon as you come into an APM role, you're expected to lead, not in the traditional way of I've got direct reports, but you're leading pretty broadly within an organization. And that requires leadership skills. And I think oftentimes that's sort of under under recognized. I think especially for people that are at kind of the senior PM level and they're starting to think about going into management, um, there's ways that they can improve their coaching skills. Some companies will have like official mentoring programs where you can mentor people that are new to the company. Other times you can do that more informally. You can get involved in, um, you know, you could get involved with like your university and um, events they're running or with other events in the industry. And so I think looking for ways to connect with other people that are earlier in their career and, and look for ways to help them is a really good way for someone who's not yet officially a manager to get the management and coaching experience that they'll need to be really successful um, when they do become a manager. And the fact that you're doing that and um, you're building up those skills also sends a signal um, to leadership within your company. This is something you take seriously and you're dedicated to growing in this, in this way. And I think it will make the opportunities come more quickly. I'm going to bounce back a bit because I I heard you say something that was really interesting that I want to kind of uh, break apart, but the, uh, this, this strategy kind of topology conversation and, and, uh, stru- organizational structure. Um, so there's one way we could actually do, you know, empower our teams to do great work is align them with the strategy uh, and the product strategy. And a lot of the, um, onus on you as a product leader in this position would be to come up with this strategy with input, but then provide it in a way that empowers the team to do great work. And you talk a lot about the fidelity of directive, essentially, like, right? Like this um, very prescriptive directive versus the too high level. And then we want to strike kind of like a middle balance and, and how we, how we give them enough context and, you know, starting with the, the uh, um, strategic framework we put forth and then kind of closing out with the topology around how we structure to service the, the strategy. Tell me a little bit more about, and, and I'm going to get very specific. Let's let's assume that you've gone through the product strategy stack exercise. You have put this thing together, and you have an existing team that hasn't been aligned yet with this stack. How do you assess, you know, and, and organize, and and then focus, and then and then kind of roll that topology out? If that makes sense. So you have a team that isn't. You've gone through the product strategy exercise. You have a really clear understanding of what your strategy is. Yes. What roadmap that entails, and then the question is: You have a team that's no that's not yet organized around that. How do you go about organizing yes. around that? Um, so I would I think one of the key sort of underlying principles to start with, and and this is something that I've um, I've said before, and and it's a key part of the product leadership program is. Your org chart is your is the most important strategy doc in your company, and if you can't at least glean part of your strategy from your org chart, um, chances are your org is not um, organized correctly. And uh, another way to think about this is if you were to disappear for six months, and the, your teams did nothing other than what they were defined to do, would they make progress on your strategy? Um, and if the answer to that is no, that means you have an organizational problem. You need to do a better job of defining your organization really clearly so that each team 
understands the role that they're playing in the strategy. Um, if you have a really clear strategy and you have an org structure that doesn't yet match that strategy, um, the first thing I would do is think about, you know, what are the teams that you need in order to implement that strategy? And the more specific the name of the teams, the better. I think one of the things that people struggle with is they tend not to name teams in a very specific way because that might mean that they need to reorg when their strategy changes. That's actually a feature, not a bug. Um, if the teams are defined in such a way that you need to change the teams when the strategy changes, that's a really good good thing. Um, and so define the teams specifically enough relative to the strategy that each leader of each team would know exactly what their role is. And then look at the people within your, your org and figure out where there's a really strong match between the particular goal of that team and um, the thing that um, that particular person is good at. So you know, interesting. So, so you're saying, yeah, you're, you're saying that clarity in that level is more important than this longevity of domain expertise kind of, is that it? Or like, how does that, how does that interchange? Because I've seen, I, we've heard about a structure where you're kind of domain driven, where you, uh, you're, you're, you're running this mobile team uh, and, you know, versus, you know, no, this is, you're specifically driving this feature. Like, and then you're, you're saying it pivots, right. And because the strategy pivots, which it should to adopt the situation, but then that, is that a whiplash to the team? Do they just get reassigned? Do you like how? Yeah, how do you think about all that? Yeah, so I think um, doing it in that way does mean that you reorg more often. But if you're reorging so often that you're thrashing the team, you're probably thrashing your strategy as well. And so the problem is not so much your org design; it's more the fact that you're changing your strategy so often. Um, so that's the the cause, the root cause at which to, to solve things. So I'll give a, a really interesting example from, from Tinder. Um, so when I got to Tinder, Tinder had uh, the product team primarily organized by feature, which is a, you know, a common way to do things. It can work if you're really thoughtful about um, what that feature structure looks like. I prefer to out, um, organize teams by outcome rather than, than feature. Uh, so one of the teams was focused on messaging. And that team over the last year had done a bunch of work to improve the messaging product for Tinder. They had added the ability to share your favorite song. They had had it added like Bitmoji stickers and things of that sort. Um, and so that feature had gotten better, but they really hadn't moved the needle on any business metrics. Um, and so I asked the leader of that team, I said, you know, what's the most important thing that you can work on within messaging in order to move metrics? We need to make sure that we're driving better outcomes for users. Um, and he said, it's at, he's like, it's actually nothing in messaging. He's like, if I look at the most important thing that we can do in messaging, it's like the fifth most important thing that we can do in this other area. Um, and so I've been doing the most important things and most impactful things in messaging. Um, but it just turns out like messaging is not the most important thing in order to move the needle for the company. What we need to do is do a better job of getting people matches. And that will bring more people into messaging. And we have enough of a messaging product um, for them to have conversations really successfully. So it was really brave for that PM to say... Um, actually, you know, the thing that I own is not the most important thing for, for the company, but that's a really good illustration of some of the drawbacks of organizing by feature is that only makes sense if that feature architecture is also the architecture of your strategy. Um, and so for 
Tinder, the most important thing at the time was to improve things pre-match. Um, and we, uh, instead of keeping the messaging team, we reorganized the teams around uh, three different areas. So it was uh, creation of your identity, conversation with other, other people, which included both pre-match conversation and post-match conversation, um, and then uh, community, uh, which uh, did some things around how you find people around shared interests. So we knew we wanted to create a broad, deeper sense of community. We knew we wanted to give people deeper ways to create a profile that was really authentic. And we knew we wanted to give people more ways to get into great conversations. And so by organizing around those outcomes, rather than features like messaging or explore or matching, we were able to much better align the teams with what we needed to accomplish in order to improve the product. That's a really great example of not just uh, good strategy and focusing on outcomes and making sure that the way you're organizing your teams and the people on your teams will drive those outcomes, but it also showcases the need for kind of going back to earlier, the uh, kind of the radical candor, the willingness to have tough conversations and have your PMs be willing to tell you things that maybe are difficult. Because again, like thinking of that PM, that is really brave, but a good organization should enable those conversations so that that type of uh, observation is something that is seen as a, is a good thing um, so that you can make sure that you deploy your team in the most effective ways possible. Absolutely. And that's exactly the relationship that I think you want to have with PMs. I was new. I could tell he was, he was visibly nervous about kind of bringing this up, um, but I was new enough that he's like, let me, let me test the waters and see how this conversation goes. And if you create an environment where those conversations can go well, it, it transforms your relationship with your team. Your team is not, a it goes beyond just doing what they're uh, sort of executing on orders or executing on feature specs and becomes part of the process of you figuring out the right strategy. Um, and it was really valuable for me because at that point I hadn't really figured that, that distinction out. Um, and so we had a really good conversation that helped me get to a much better strategy much more that. quickly. Well, you know, Robbie, I want to thank you so much for joining us, um, you know, and spending spending an hour out of your day with us. I really appreciate you. And I appreciate all this uh, wonderful uh, bit of uh, knowledge that you're sharing with our listeners. Um, let, let's wrap it up with homework. And, you know, what, you know, what assignments could we give uh, to our listeners to level up their coaching expertise? Um, maybe we'll uh, start with Zach. I'll put you on the spot. We'll go to Jake. Go to myself after that and then finish with you. I feel like I always have to go first. uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) I would say, you know, I think um, dedicating one uh, one on one with each of your team members per month towards the longer term conversations, the safe space conversations. If you haven't done that already, start there. Um, And then I also think add in some of the questions we talked about, about, you know, where do you want to end up? you know, with your career, like what, what are you trying to grow into? Because I think that's often missed and it's just how, how can I help you hit your goals with your current team, your current setup? And those things are good, but really look at how can I help you grow into the specific types of uh, skills and the, into the role you're really striving for in the long term, so that you can um, better help tailor your coaching and your leadership style to the specific uh, interests of the people on your team. So that, that would be my thing to do starting this week. Love it. I agree. I think what I would add to that, perhaps in the same conversation, what I would offer is for the manager in that one-on-one relationship, count the number of questions you ask during that one-on-one. And you should be asking, let's just say at least five in that time. Love that. Um, Another tangible thing here, uh, 
entertain office hours. I, I'm, I know I'm going to do this. So um, <laughs> I'm going to block four hour blocks off and 30 minute times and pre sign ups. I, I love that idea. So I'm going to give that a shot. Um, Robbie, bring us home. Yeah, that's great. Um, we ran a survey when we started Scale Hire about where people get advice. And one of the things that was surprising to us is 80% of people go to someone other than their boss when they face a challenge at work. Um, and uh, it's something like 60% of people go to their significant other. Um, and so that puts a lot of pressure on significant others. I would say like two things you could do is one is be a coach. So, you know, figure out someone on your team or someone that you're working with um, and give them a safe space to help them ask questions and help them deal with the challenge. And the other thing is to be coachable. Uh, go to someone who uh, is new that you haven't gotten advice for from before, ask them a question on what you could keep doing, what you can stop doing. Um, and, you know, by doing that, by striking up that conversation, I think you'll find uh, you get a lot of really new and, and useful signal out of that. Um, and it puts less pressure on your significant other to be that coach for you. <laughs> Love it. Well, uh, Robbie, where can our listeners uh, find your stuff? And uh, in, in, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we are taking applications at scalehire.com. Um, so you can go there. Uh, and we've got a few different programs that are available right now. We're in the early phases. We just started about six months ago, um, but would love to uh, would love to help people who are interested in uh, engaging with coaching in a, in a new and uh, effective way. Um, and then I uh, publish on uh, ravi-meta.com uh, every once in a while. Uh, so I've got articles on product strategy, on product competencies and things of that sort. Awesome. Well, thanks so much again for your time. Um, it looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.